This is Impact Healthcare, people and strategies that are disrupting the health benefits industry. And now, here's your host, healthcare benefits industry expert and the originator of the transparent health benefits movement, Lester Morales. Impact Healthcare crowd. I am pumped for this session. And, you know, normally I either have an advisor, I have a service provider, I have somebody in the business. This is today. I actually have a celebrity on and he might not consider himself a celebrity because he's super modest, but I have Marshall Allen here, the author of Never Pay the First Bill, uh, and I'm sitting here with a hundred copies in here. It was so impactful to read myself. Marshall, say hello to the Impact Healthcare crowd. And for anybody that doesn't know you, give us an, an introduction of yourself. And I always like to have everybody start off with what's their why? What what makes Marshall get up in the morning and be fired up? Oh man, Lester, thank you for that amazing introduction. And of course, anybody who buys 100 copies of my book becomes a best friend for life. So I am really thankful uh, for you doing that. So my why, you know, I wrote this book. In fact, the, the dedication of my book says to anyone who's been pushed around by the American health system. And so my why is because I get calls and emails every day from people who are getting beat up by the healthcare system. Especially right now, I'm, I'm focused on the financial side, but I have spent years digging into the quality side too. I mean, there are patient safety problems, there are quality problems. And I wrote my book to focus on the problems with the high cost of healthcare. So my why is to equip and empower individuals and employers to stand up for themselves against these financial bullies that are taking advantage of them. So it's been really fun to write the book. The response has been fantastic. And I am I'm really thrilled to be here talking to you today. Awesome. So just to give a little bit of context, uh, because quite honestly, until I heard you speak, I didn't really know how in-depth your background was. And, and, and quite honestly, why are you so credible that somebody should read this book. So give us a little bit of your background on, on, on where all of the knowledge that goes into this goes. Well, I, I spent 20 years as an investigative journalist, and I spent 15 years as an investigative journalist investigating healthcare. And 10 years of that was at ProPublica. And if people don't know ProPublica, I mean, it's probably the number one investigative journalism organization in the country right now. When I say we dig deep, we dig deep. Every story I would do, I would talk to the patient. I would get the patient's medical records. I would get all of their claims. I would have them waive their HIPAA rights so that I could talk to their doctors, their hospitals, their insurance companies. I would have experts review every single piece of the, of the scenario about what happened so I could get to the truth of what is happening. And so I'm talking to this, all the different stakeholders the patients, the brokers, the employers, the hospitals, the doctors, the insurance companies to get at what is actually going on. And so I've done an independent investigation. Nobody's paid me. Nobody's influenced me to, to write what I put in the book. And so it really is an objective look from the patient and employer point of view. And by the way, these are the people who are paying the, the price for all of this. Okay. 
The patients and the employers are paying everything. And even the employer portion, by the way, is coming out of the employee's compensation. So ultimately, it's employee compensation funding all this. So employees need to get engaged so they know what's happening to their compensation and they need to push back. And so I have done in-depth reporting. I've talked to hundreds of patients who have been harmed physically or financially by the healthcare system. And I've just done in-depth work. And again, I'm looking at it from the point of view of the patient and the employers. And so that's that's why I'm that's who I'm advocating for. What what I and this is why I was sitting in the audience listening to you speak about crawling out of my chair. I, when we were 17 years old, five, you know, my parents had to file bankruptcy. So, like, you know, everything that you were saying about the struggle, the pain points, the the stats that are just so alarming. That, lived it. You know, I was talking to a uh, a lady today. She was the chief people officer for a group that had 2,600 employees, and we were talking, and it's really interesting how our business as an advisor, we've done this to employers, but you know, the, 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 such the minimum level of, of what their expectation is, but her exact example, when we were talking about strategies that could lower their cost, she goes, well, you know, our deductibles aren't that bad. You know, it's on our regular plan, it's $2,000 and the out-of-pocket max is 4,000. And the other one, it's three and six. And I'm thinking, do you realize? So let's start off with that because again, I was blown away when I was reading. Well, I actually listened to it, but I, I was reading this. Um, yeah, the yeah. stats that you quote on your book. So let's start off with a couple of those. Give us some of those stats that like will raise eyebrows. Uh, well, that go with. well, so just if you want to speak statistically, the 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 woman you were talking to today, out of her twenty six hundred employees one in five Americans has medical debt in collections. And so if her company is representing the norm across the country, about 500 of her employees have medical debt in collections right now. And that is an absolute shame because the other stats that are relevant here are that we spend about twice as much per person on healthcare in the United States compared to every other developed country in the world. And, and we're getting worse results. So we're spending twice as much. We have one in five with medical debt in collections. We have about 30 million people uninsured. They have no coverage. The deductibles are rising. The premiums are rising while the coverage is dropping. And so, you know, statistically, it's a train wreck and it's, a, it's an absolute shame. But, but you, Lester, I want to ask you a question because you have experienced the life of that statistic, right? Those are just numbers, right? But what's it like for a family to go through something like that? Can you give me some idea what that's like? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I uh, about two years ago was the very first time I ever told the story off of a stage uh, because it's embarrassing. I mean, I, I gotta say, like, luckily now I, I've I've come to grips that that is what fuels my fire. Right. But right. I can tell you, as a seventeen-year-old high school kid trying to ask the pretty girl out to prom and try to live a normal life, your parents filing bankruptcy and then not necessarily understanding what that means. Are, are we going to get kicked out of the house? Do I have a, and then meanwhile, my dad was having bone marrow transplants and chemo and radiation. So the amount of 
like just uncertainty that you even understand with what's next. I can't imagine what my parents were going through because they shielded me from a lot of that, but it is not something that you you really want to understand. And, And here's the thing. I think that people, most people think that somebody who files bankruptcy was, you know, shopping too much at Nordstrom's or, you know, whatever. And I've heard some stats. I don't know if they're the true, like 67% of personal bankruptcies are because of medical reasons. And most of those people actually have insurance. Yeah, I don't know the exact stats on that, but but it's similar to what you're saying. And, And I think one of the things I put... You were saying such a big number on stats, but then what was the average? I remember writing this down, the, the average amount of debt that somebody has in collections. Wasn't it a, 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 oh, a nominal it's a amount? It's a few hundred dollars. It's not high. It's, it's a few hundred dollars. And this was the other stat I wanted to throw out there. So the average, not the average, the Federal Reserve did a study looking at how much money people have in their bank accounts, their savings accounts. of Americans have $400 or less savings. So when you talk about a deductible of $2,000 or $3,000, 40% of Americans don't have $400 in their savings accounts. And so these are astronomical numbers for the typical American family. I mean, the typical American family of four makes around 60, 70, $80,000. That's the median. And many obviously are making much less. So when you talk about an adding an extra $2,000 deductible, which is probably per person, that is a mind-blowing amount of money for someone to tack on every year to their, to, their, to their financial bills. And then you look at the other statistics that show that people are going without health care because they can't afford it. They're going without it. They need care and they can't get it. Um, a recent study by the Senate Finance Committee showed that people are rationing their use of insulin because of the increased high prices that are unjustifiably increased over the years because of the profiteering of the pharmaceutical industry. And so what we have here is a situation where certain actors in the healthcare industry are profiteering based on our sickness. They are exploiting our sickness for profit. They're not doing it fairly. And so really what I argue in my book is we need to identify who these profiteers are, these profiteering parties, and shun them, avoid them. There's so much price variation that's unjustified that if we can identify the hospitals, the doctors, the drug companies, and others who are giving us a fair price on healthcare, let's give them our business. Let's reward them. And then let's identify the overpriced price gougers and let's shun them. (laughs) Let's starve them so that they realize that they need to give us a fair deal in order to get our our money. So, you know, we could take this conversation a lot of different ways, but the audience typically on this is going to be an advisor or think of an employer. So um, I want to add value to that audience specifically. So a lot of the things that I know that you and your hearts of hearts want to do is starts with a word empowerment. Yes. Uh, and I and I love that word because I, I've got a client in his quote, and I just love the quote. We have to b- stop being passive in a very active game. And, yeah. and that to me is empowerment. So if, if, if we're talking an employer who is making the decisions for all their employees 
who the 40% of their employees probably don't have $400 in their bank and they're making these decisions. What does this book do for them in regards to mentality, education, or the ability to empower what is their number one asset, which is their employees? So I have three chapters in the book that are devoted just to employers. And I think the one thing I would say to employers is don't be a sucker. <laughs> you know, like it's we've we've gone for decades now and we can see that there is a steady steady increase in the the cost of healthcare and the the dirty secret is it's not really a secret but these increased costs are not justified. There is so much wasteful spending in the healthcare system. There's so much price gouging. There's so much administrative bloat. There's so much complexity in the way claims are processed that we are wasting hundreds of billions of dollars of employer funds and employee funds every year. And so employers need to step up and say, okay, what exactly am I paying for right now? And so don't be a sucker, first of all. Stop taking, take your head out of the sand. It's time to take responsibility and get engaged and get equipped and get empowered. And the way that you want to do that as an employer is realize solutions exist for all these problems. So my second point would be, first point, don't be a sucker. Second point, solutions exist for these problems. So I've, I've laid out lots of the solutions in my book. Let's look at the problem of fraud. Fraud is rampant in commercial sponsored health plans. It's also rampant in the government plans, but the government has um, special government funded investigators to look into healthcare fraud. In the commercial space, the employer sponsored place, we're depending on the big health insurance companies like United, Cigna, Aetna. We're expecting them to police fraud. Well, here's the secret. It's not in their best interest to police fraud. It's actually expensive for them to police fraud. And they make more money as the cost of healthcare goes up. So they actually profit from the fraud. So if you're not having a third party vendor look at your claims as an employer, you are letting money sail out the door, whether it's fraudulent or just overpayments that are based on mistakes. You have got to get some data analytics folks to get your claims and take a close look and then really examine where your money's going. So Marshall, I, I wanna dig on that word fraudulent because you know sometimes when you hear fraud, you think of the most egregious of the egregious, right? But when you're talking about fraud, you're talking about things that if people understood the frequency of this fraud and this abuse and this waste, they would be surprised. Give me kind of an example that every employer should be looking out for? What's an everyday example that you've seen? So I just talked to a woman the other day whose husband um, got a cut out on the work site in his knee. He needed six stitches. They went to a emergency room at a hospital near where he got the cut. He got a, a saline wash of the site of the wound. They got a, um, uh, a, a local shot, you know, for a little local anesthetic. And then they put six stitches on the wound. That was the extent of the visit. They build that as a level four emergency room visit. A level four emergency room visit is for complex medical care. 
they, 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 they grade these things on a scale of level one to level five for emergency room visits. And so I'm just telling you, this is common. This is an everyday problem. It's called upcoding. You take a level one case that should be a really simple case with a lower, lower price tag. You code it as a level four and voila, you make more money. And it just so happens, by the way, that this is one of these private equity owned uh, emergency room physician groups that's running these bills. So they are very incentivized to upcode these claims. Now, believe it or not, it's not allowed to just put whatever price tag you want on something. To bill a level four emergency room visit, you have to have three components to make sure that, it's, that it has integrity. Number one, you have to do an extended problem-focused history of the patient. You need to understand, is that patient a diabetic? What are all the medications they're on? What's the history of this problem they're coming in with? It's supposed to take a long time to do that interview. That did not happen in this case because it wasn't necessary. Number two, you have to do an extended problem-focused examination. They didn't do an examination of this guy. I mean, he went in for a cut in his knee. They looked at the knee, they washed it out, but they didn't do some full body exam. And then number three, you need to have medical decision-making of some level of complexity. Level four is actually quite high on the complexity scale. It didn't require complex medical decision-making to put in some stitches. So a level four code is not justified in that case. It should have been a level one. Now, the patient knew this, and now I'm helping this patient fight back and advocate. And in my book, I have a chapter on how to sue in small claims court. And so it just so happened that this happened in Tennessee. The limits on small claims court in Tennessee are anything under $25,000. So this is, this is a, like a $6,000 bill. And by the way, the health plan ended up paying about half of it. And then the patient got the other half of the bill. So the plan is paying more and the patient is paying more in this case. Well, the patient might end up filing a claim in small claims court for price gouging, for fraudulent billing. And what I've found when people file these claims, it rarely goes to court because it forces the hospital or the doctor group or whoever's sending the bills to hire an attorney to defend themselves at the cost of hundreds of dollars an hour. They don't want to do that. So what it requires is it forces them to do the right thing by coming to the table and negotiating it as a fair price. Everything's negotiable in this game, right? And so it, it really gives them the incentive they need to come to the table and give the patient a fair price. So is there a resolution to that issue that you're talking about right now? Have you seen the end outcome or, or this, not this yet? This particular one is in process right now. This is just a woman I just talked to a couple of days ago. And so her next step, she's got her medical records She's got an itemized medical bill. These are things I recommend everyone do. Um, she's priced her medical bill. So there's a website called fairhealthconsumer.org where I recommend people go to look up prices. And you can also look now on hospital websites under the federal government's hospital price transparency rule. Starting in January of this year, 2021, hospitals are required to post their prices on their websites. Many hospitals have not complied, but many of them have, and it's showing this astonishing price variation. But what it allows patients to do is price their own care, and then they can see, oh, I'm getting ripped off. <laughs> I'm getting so, taken advantage of, and then you can fight back and argue it. So, Marshall, I want to I want to not mince words in that in this example because you said it, but I want to make sure that people understand this. 
in that difference between the level one and the level four, there's only one reason for that to be coded. And it is straight economic financial gain for the, in this scenario, the ER docs that, that did this. Is that yes, a you can you can say it might be a mistake, right? It, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right because we don't know that it's fraud, right? Um, fraud requires you to know the intent of the actor, you know, sending it. it. So we can't say for sure that it's fraudulent, but we we know that it's either an error or it's fraudulent, right? One of the two. So at best, it's a mistake. And it's a mistake that needs to be corrected. And so what I'm trying to do is show employers and employees what the leverage points are that they have to give them the incentive to correct their mistakes or correct their fraud. I don't care if it's fraud or um, a mistake at the end of the day, just correct it. Give the patient a fair deal. So in, in, in this podcast, I look to, you know, expose people to strategies and things. So in that example, you know, the benefit there on something like this is that client being self-funded, right? That they're paying their claims. But let's reverse that and say, okay, this group was fully insured. So intuitively you would think, well, wait a second, why doesn't United Healthcare want to review that themselves? And then if that patient were to go, you know, do that, that's only benefiting them at that standpoint. Why, why is it United trying to dig through all of this and ask the questions that you're talking about here? Because wouldn't they save millions of dollars too? They would. <laughs> they would. But, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act put this medical loss ratio rule into place where health plans are required to spend between 80 and 85% of every dollar they bring in on medical claims. And so what that has done is it's restricted the profit margins of the big insurance companies. So in the past, before the ACA, um, they they would have benefited by saving money because they would have kept the difference, right? But now under the Affordable Care Act, if they don't spend 80 or 85% of what they bring in on actual medical costs, they actually have to return that money to the people who pay the premiums. And trust me, they don't want to be returning any dollars that they bring in. That's not good for their shareholders. So what they do is um, they want to make sure that that money is spent and then they keep, you know, a percentage for their profit. Let's say it's an 85% medical loss ratio. They keep uh, 11 or 12% for administrative costs and 3% for profit. So let's say their profit is 3%. Well, in order to make your revenue grow, if your profit is locked in at 3%, you need the overall cost to get bigger, right? And so I I said this in my my book, this is how I refer to it. It's like if you gave a child a bowl of ice cream and said, you're only allowed to eat 3% of this bowl of ice cream. A clever child would say, in that case, make it a bigger bowl. I want more ice cream, right? And so they really don't have the incentive to be good stewards of our money. And it's even worse, Lester, of course, in the self-funded world, because in the self-funded money. world, they're not even paying a penny. They're just passing that cost on to the employer-sponsored plan. And so especially for self-funded employers, you have got to be watching those claims. And another little secret of the industry they auto adjudicate all these claims. And by that, I mean, they just have a computer process them. They're not checking to see if the prices are fair or reasonable compared to other prices. 
if the claim is filled out with the proper date, with the NPI number, with the location on it, with the claims code, it just gets paid. No questions asked. And they even have thresholds in the insurance companies. I've talked to more than a dozen investigators who investigate fraud for insurance companies. They have thresholds that they set so that any claim under 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 doesn't get a second look. It just gets auto adjudicated. So especially the fraud at the smaller levels, you know, where it's a $5,000 claim, a $1,000 claim, nobody's looking at that and scrutinizing it at the insurance company level. Oh, I can dig into this. Like, uh, like my blood is, boy, I bet if I measured my blood pressure. So, so let me just give one more tip for the employer. Yeah, I was going to go back to you've given us two. You said Yeah, three. so let me, just, let me just let me throw a third one in there just to round it out. If you don't have an advisor, so this is the importance of the broker or the advisor who's helping design the benefit plan for the employer. If you don't have an advisor who is bringing these types of solutions to you, you need to get a different advisor. I'm just being straight up blunt because a lot of the advisors are being paid, uh, but the traditional arrangement is for them to get paid by the insurance company. They have commissions, they have bonuses that come through the insurance plans. And so that's the traditional setup. And it's almost like a rewards plan, you know, like I fly United Airlines, I get rewards points. I use my Wells Fargo credit card, I get rewards points. That incentivizes me to use that airline and that credit card. Same thing with the insurance company bonuses. They give volume bonuses based on the the number of lives that a broker will have with um, with an insurance company, you get a bigger bonus if you have more lives. They give retention bonuses. So if you can convince an employer to sign up again with your insurance company, uh, they give you a bonus for that. So these are things that are not so subtly influencing the way brokers advise the employers. And this is one of the things that has helped um, keep employers locked into the same old, same old when it comes to the Blue Cross, the Aetna, the United, the Cigna, the Humana. And there are solutions, but the solutions are outside of those boxes, right? And so that's what I'm enc- I would encourage employers to do. Number three, find an advisor who will offer these solutions to you. And if your current one doesn't, at least talk to a different advisor. And you may even want to talk to an advisor who's getting paid direct fees from employers, because that's the other way they arrange it. And probably a lot of the people in the audience here is even moving this direction where the advisor will take a direct fee from the employer. That way, the employer is the one signing the check for the advisor and the advisor is incentivized to find solutions for that employer. When when I was an advisor, that's the only way I got paid. And that was my value proposition was, I, I, I don't deserve a raise just because you have to pay more. And then what I always find is interesting is if we understand the trend line is typically taking cost up. Uh, when I'm talking to an employer and they're like, but my broker, you know, is so great and they're doing such they they answer the phone when we call. I mean, our expectations of what defines good in this industry is just pathetic. I'm like, well, turn that chart upside down and have it going down this way and pretend that that was your financial advisor and that was representing your portfolio. Love it. How long would you have that person employed? And people sit back and they're like, man, they just simply don't know. Uh, It's unbelievable. So I'd love to give 
um, some tactical examples. And I bet you've got them through your arm length of, but pick out a couple memorable examples of folks that you investigated their story or that you you know about. And, and what if, what's the tool in the toolbox that they're going to learn if they buy and read your book? That, and, and what's the outcome of that? So I can give you I can give you a lot because I, I've laid them out in the book. And I've also taken um, my, my hobby now is uh, and I'm relishing this. Uh, people can reach out to me. OK, go to my website, MarshallAllen.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter there. And you can also contact me through the site if you want help with, with some of your bills. I'm having so much fun last year um, helping these. I'm kind of coaching uh, patients and employers through some of these processes. So I'll give you an example um, right now. This is, again, that's one that's in process, but I'm feeling optimistic about it. And it, it illustrates the point. Financial assistance policies. Hospitals are required by the IRS to have financial assistance policies for patients who are anywhere under say two or 300% of the federal uh, poverty level. So I talked to a woman the other day who has a sister who's disabled. The sister ended up spending 11 days in the hospital. She's her bills are at $129,000. Well, the sister is trying to help her disabled sister and she's trying to figure out, okay, she read my book. And she's she's like, okay, how do I how do I do this? How do I navigate this? How do I get these bills? Well, I, I mentioned to her financial assistance policies. You know, I do mention those in the book, and I'm and I have a video on that, by the way. With I know you know I'm doing a series of health literacy videos. I have a whole video on on how to use hospital financial assistance policies. Turns out her sister has an income that's below the federal poverty level, and it sounds like looking at the hospital financial assistance policy. She would qualify. And when I say qualify, if you qualify for financial assistance, they will waive 100% of your bill. She could get the whole 129K waived by following that hospital's financial assistance policy. And these policies are quite generous. So even people who make six figures in a lot of cases can get some type of a discount on their medical bill especially depending on the other costs that they might have. So hospital financial assistance policies, most patients don't even know they exist. They don't know how to apply. And so I show people how to do that in the book and in my videos. Um, let me just give you another, though, a real common scenario. Okay, another tip. Please. Anytime you get a medical bill, make sure you get an itemized medical bill. Doctors and hospitals typically do not send itemized bills. And by that, I mean, you know, if you went to the grocery store and went to check out and they gave you one lump sum total for your groceries, you'd be like, well, wait a minute, how much were the eggs? How much was the cheese? How much was the bread? You want to make sure that it's it includes items you actually received and that they weren't overpriced. Same with an itemized medical bill. Make sure it breaks down every charge that's on that hospital bill. Make sure you check that all those charges were for things that actually occurred. Because again, believe it or not, there are so many mistakes in these bills. If you don't check them, you could lose hundreds or thousands of dollars per encounter. So get the itemized bill. Make sure you also get billing codes for each of those charges, because like I said, you can look up those billing codes and you can see if the price they're requiring you to pay is a fair price. I, again, I mentioned that website, fairhealthconsumer.org. Go to fairhealthconsumer.org, 
look up the prices on Fair Health Consumer compared to what you've been charged. Fair Health is a nonprofit that gathers the average amount that insurance companies pay in all the zip codes around the country, and then they make that information available for free. So you can go on and you can look it up. Also, you can price it on hospital websites. So make sure you check the hospital websites for the prices. And then if you've identified an error or an overcharge in your bill, well, then you want to contest it. And again, this is where things get a little, it can be strategic. Hopefully it's an easy one to contest. Like I've seen um, cases where people get a bill and then they look and they see that their insurance plan didn't even receive the claim. That's a no brainer. You just call the insurance company, you call the hospital or the clinic or the doctor and have them route it to the insurance company and then the, they process it. So you have to make sure your plan processed it properly. Um, but in many cases, you know, they won't back off. And that's those are the cases where I walk people through what I kind of call the never pay pathway, you know, to get the bill, make sure it's accurate, price it. And then if necessary, consider suing them in small claims court to defend yourself. That's something that's been set up for every American to protect themselves against predatory consumer practices. Learn how to do it. It's not that difficult. It can be stressful. I'm not going to lie. It can be stressful, but it is extremely effective. And this is where when you go to small claims court, you don't need to have an attorney. You've already gathered the evidence you need because I've, I've shown you how to do that in the book. Then you file a claim, which costs about $30, very cheap to do. Anybody can do it. They receive that claim and now they have a choice to make. They can either show up in front of a judge and defend their error-filled and overpriced medical bills, or they can come to the table and make a fair deal, right? So that's really the pathway that I lay out in the book. And it's been really, really fun and fulfilling to see people put these things into practice. You know what's so interesting? So, you know, I, I hope. This is why I do this, is that this platform gives people some more knowledge that they didn't have yesterday, but it really takes somebody and their initiative, right? And it's so funny when I think about this, and it's aggravating. People shop their cars, you know, people clip coupons. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times when we're talking to them about these strategies that have a, an advocate that can help them understand this pricing and the quality ahead, and they're like, you mean I have to call ahead of time? And you're just yeah. like, are you kidding? Like the, the, the healthcare might be the second biggest item you'll ever pay for other than your mortgage in your house. And it's like that foreign thought. So if, if, if you like, we're giving a pep talk to somebody, cause I, I want to close this up because I, I really, I mean, again, and I bought a hundred copies of this because I know what it feels like, but what's that pep talk? Because you know, as an insurance advisor, people are always like, oh, you're just doing it to, to sell more insurance or, you know, because you're a sales guy. This was your job. And you got up every day wanting to empower and you still do wanting to empower people and give them more knowledge. What's your what's your pep talk? What's your, hey, listen to me. Let me shake you. Stop doing it the other way moment. So um, I tried to lay these out in the book as much as I could, because if you the subtitle of the book, so the book is Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. And Win. And Win is the most important part. 
And in my book, I show the individuals and the employers who are winning. And by winning, I mean, they are paying less, a lot less, and they're getting better care while spending less. So let me give you some examples. So my pep talk, in fact, this is what gets me pumped every day. Every day I'm checking my Amazon reviews because these kinds of reviews pop up. Let me read you this one from Hope, which I think I love that that this person's name is Hope. It couldn't be better. Because they're giving hope to everybody. And this this was just yesterday on Amazon. Wow, did this book help? I would have never considered trying to challenge a bill from a doctor or hospital. But when I went in for blood tests and saw that they charged $1,350 for one blood test, I remembered what I read in this book and went after them. Bottom line, the charge was removed and I saved $1,350. Amazing. Thank you. I mean, that peps me up. That pumps me up. And I hope that it encourages and pumps up uh, listeners right now and anybody who also um, reads my book or is is fighting these challenges. Let me give you one other one, okay? Because there's a bunch of them. I encourage people, go on Amazon and read my reviews. Listen to this one. This this is a person who calls their name 888J. No wonder health insurance in the US is so expensive. My doctor sent me to Advent Health for a CT scan, and they said my out-of-pocket cost was $1,800. I said that was ridiculous, and the woman said straight-faced, well, CT scans cost $3,000 to $6,000, and $1,800 is the negotiated rate with your insurance, but you haven't met your deductible. I asked if that included the radiologist, and she said that was billed separately. Not today, lady. Following Marshall Allen's advice, I found a local imaging center and paid $400 cash, including radiologists. So again, people are doing this. It's not rocket science. It is possible to do. And so I believe in the power of patients. And I know that many patients are not going to do this. Okay. I know many employees are, are not, they don't have the personality. Maybe they make too much money. You know, it's not really worth it for them to take their time to hassle with this. They just want to overpay for everything. But many patients will do this. And there are, I estimate, about 185 million Americans who are right now overpaying for their health care. This is the working class of Americans, the people who are on employer-sponsored plans or uninsured. That's 185 million. What would happen if half of them started to push back? What would happen if 10% of them started to push back? If 10% of those people, 18 million Americans, demanded an itemized bill, demanded a price up front, demanded a fair price, sued in small claims court when they were getting taken advantage of, I think it would flip the power structure entirely on its head. So this is possible. We've just never really um, tried to empower or inform or educate employees to get them really engaged. But I think if they get engaged on this level, it's a game changer. Man, I, I absolutely love it. And, and, and the, here's the thing. The so what behind this is we're not, we're, we're not going back to old, like, you know, insurance is getting some changes, right? With transparency and all these rules, the ACA, we're moving down a continuum. If we don't get to a point where healthcare costs are lowered for more people, eventually the government's going to take it over. And, you know, I mean, me for one, I don't want to get my healthcare at the DMV. So like, you know, for me, I look at this, I'm like, these are just things. 
that we can empower people. And they've been doing this in every other aspect of their life. Nobody buys the first house that they walk up. You don't just drive onto the car lot and buy the car. We cut coupons. We shop cell phones. And that has nothing to do with our health. Those are intimate objects. It's such a big deal. It does require employees and patients to change the way they think about their healthcare system and the way they engage with it. It does require them to get alert, to snap to attention, right? And I think sometimes I've I've had people tell me, well, this is too hard. No one's going to do this. What what about the burden for patients? And And I hear that, okay? I understand there is some work and effort and persistence required here, sometimes a lot, right? So I'm not trying to downplay that, but think about when you got your first checking account, when you were maybe a teenager or a young adult. Well, that looked kind of foreign too, right? You had to learn how to balance your checkbook. You got these statements in the mail. You had to do math. It was awkward and uncomfortable. Maybe you even ignored it more than you should have. But look, if you didn't do that, there might be hidden fees, there might be erroneous charges, there might be money being sucked out of your checking account that you didn't even know about. And so people get that, right? Well, you know what? The cost of healthcare is usually multiple exponentially higher than what most of us have in our checking accounts. So why not learn some financial literacy skills? Again, it's not hard to balance a checkbook after you've been doing it for a year or two. You get accustomed to it. You know what your credit card statement looks like now or your bank statement. And so it seems hard up front because people haven't been asked to do it before. I'm trying to show them why they need to do it and how it's easier than they think. And also the payoff is huge. Hundreds or thousands of dollars can be saved with every healthcare interaction if people are smart and savvy and protect themselves. I love it. I love it. So Marshall, if somebody wanted to learn more, continue to follow you, uh, all that, I know you named your website, name it again, and then, and then make sure people understand how to get their hands on this healthy tool. So MarshallAllen.com is my website. You can sign up for my newsletter there. You can contact me there. So Marshall, thank you so, so much for anybody thank who you. wants to stay involved and get links to understanding when we drop um, the next episode. You can be part of our text community. Just text 813-537-6992 and put in there Impact Healthcare. We'll add you to the list and we'll send you the links of when episodes drop. And again, our whole goal on this is to teach employers, teach employees, teach advisors who are making the decisions on behalf of so many people, the strategies that Marshall's got on his book. So make sure you got it. You can buy it on Audible. You can buy it in hard copy. You can link uh, down below. And if you're an employer, we'll send you a copy. Marshall, thank you for spending your afternoon. This is we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. So thank you for spending your Friday afternoon. Thank you for the passion and the leadership that uh you do for everybody that's going to benefit from you. I, I hope it puts a smile on your face and lets you uh, put your head down on that pillow and sleep really good at night because you deserve that. Definitely. Thanks, Lester. All right. We'll see you guys soon and tune into the next episode of Impact Healthcare. Thanks so much, Marshall. Yeah. 
You've been listening to Impact Healthcare, people and strategies that are disrupting the health benefits industry with Lester Morales. Remember, the journey to getting 20% savings on your healthcare benefits starts with total transparency. Remember to subscribe to the Impact Healthcare podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.